Hello, welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership podcast series. My name is Scott Miller, where I serve as your host and interviewer each week. You may know that I've recently published a book based on the podcast titled Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds, available now both in print, audio, and digital. The book really was a, a compilation, a compendium, if you will, of 30 of our first guest from the first two years where I thought these people had a transformative insight to share. In some cases, it was something they wrote in their book, they said on air, or perhaps in many cases, it was off air, metaphorically in the green room, the green room, the minute before or after the podcast series. And today's guest, Dory Clark, is one of the 30 master mentors with permission. She decided to be included. We're delighted that she did. She has a new book out called The Long Game. We're going to talk about it today. Dory Clark, welcome from, I believe, New York City. I am in New York City, and I'm so glad to be here, Scott. Thank you. Dora, you and I have uh, become friends over the course of a couple of years. You are one of the early group in the MG100, known as the, Mar- known as the Marshall Goldsmith 100. You are a prolific author, writer, coach, speaker, professor. Uh, you, this is not your first time on the podcast. We had you on a couple of years ago, which... Uh, was the reason why you agreed to be in Master Mentors. Today, we're going to talk about your newest book, The Long Game. But, Dory, I'd like you for a few minutes to check your ego, and I'd like you to literally, over the course of a few minutes, reorient your journey for our listeners and viewers around the world so they can understand, truly, how you have applied the long game in your own career. And I think one of the best ways to illustrate that is for you to perhaps even protract your own professional journey, including your start as a journalist, your roles as a communication strategist for political campaigns, I don't care about the party, you're welcome to name the candidates, and maybe use the the recap on how the long game has also worked for you, and then we'll dive into the actual book. All right, and and we're we're reorienting. You want the juicy stuff, Scott. You want all the Uh, failures, right? (laughs) uh, Obviously, obviously. All right, let's, let's go through the litany of disaster together. I'm with you. So very briefly, my arc. Um, I, nowadays, I, uh, for 15 years, have had my own business and I do consulting and executive coaching. I teach uh, for Duke University and Columbia and write books like this one, The Long Game. But that is not how I started out. Uh, The way that I got there, I first thought that I would be in academia. And so I finished my master's degree, applied for a doctoral program, did not get in to any of the doctoral programs that I applied to. So I had to, that was, that was plan A that got scrapped. So I had to go to plan B and I very quickly formulated one because I, I absolutely did not have a plan B. I was uh, super surprised that I did not get in anywhere. So I, I had to scramble and I decided to become a journalist, which I thought also had a good dose of reading and writing and talking to people. And so for about a year, I was a professional journalist until I got laid off on Monday, September 10th, 2001, which was an unfortunate time to lose a job uh, because the job hunting the next day was not what I expected it to be. And that kind of instilled in me uh, a real sense of the fragility of the modern workforce sometimes and, and the fact that we really need to be proactive about our careers and taking control of them because very unexpected things can happen. Uh, I tried to get another job in journalism, did not work, and I then went into politics because I had been covering politics. So I became a spokesperson on a governor's race and then a presidential race, 
they both lost. And so my early professional track record was not, not amazing. Uh, I like to think it was through no fault of my own, but, uh, but nonetheless, I was not really triumphing. Uh, and then eventually I got a job running uh, a nonprofit. I was the executive director of a small nonprofit. And that helped me realize, okay, this is actually very much like running a business. Maybe I could run my own. And so that was what I started um, my own business in 2006. But as I think about these things, one of the ironies that, that has actually been a powerful lesson for me is that Many of the things that I wanted to accomplish when I was in college or when I was in my early 20s, I actually am very fortunate that I have been able to accomplish them, but they all took different forms. I wanted to be a journalist, you know, that that didn't work out. But these days, I actually spend a significant amount of time writing articles. I write regularly for the Harvard Business Review and for Fast Company and for Newsweek. And uh, I just published a piece for the first time last week in the Wall Street Journal. So I've, I've actually gotten to be a de facto journalist in, in many ways, although it took a different form. And I th- in, in terms of academia, I wanted to get a PhD. I didn't. I never did. Um, but I'm able to teach at major universities uh, these days through the work that I've done as a practitioner. So I think if, if I can identify a central theme of the long game, it's inspired by that, um, starting with my own experience and then interviewing a lot of other professionals about their journeys, that we often can accomplish the things, the big goals, the big dreams that we want, um, even if we've been turned away, even if we've been set back by the gatekeepers. But we have to recognize it does take a while sometimes, and we have to be persistent. And it may not come in quite the form we expect, but we actually can get there. Dory, you've probably sold yourself a bit short, too. You, you actually operated on some very high-profile U.S. presidential campaigns and gubernatorial campaigns. And you, you're, this book, in many ways, is a memoir. I, I don't want to categorize that for fear someone doesn't want to write a, read a memoir. But in many ways, this book is a testament to your own career strategy. If I had to summarize the book into three words, I'd probably say uh, choice, patience, and deliberation, because you write that it does take courage to become a long-term thinker. The tagline of the book is, you know, uh, you know, really thinking long-term in a short-term world. All of us are, you know, kind of to quote you, uh, intoxicated by busyness and frenzy. Talk about how difficult it really is to be thinking long-term in a world where we're inundated, where we have a barrage of options and choices, and that we have to actually make deliberate choices and say no to some things and, in fact, yes to others, not yes to everything, if we want to be a long-term thinker. Absolutely. I mean, fundamentally, the, the book, The Long Game, is about how to apply the principles of strategic thinking to our own lives and careers. Many of us who are executives or entrepreneurs certainly do strategic thinking maybe about our business or where we want our business to go. But in many ways, it's kind of a cobbler's children situation where we are not applying that lens and flipping it to ourselves and our own lives and our own professional trajectories. And I think it's so important to do it because, you know, for obvious reasons, we we don't want to be jellyfish where we're just kind of floating in the ocean and we end up where we end up. All of us have goals of some kind. We have some kind of vision about where we want to be or how we want our lives to be. And, you know, of course, it's not to say, you know, oh, just dream it and it will magically happen. We have to work toward things. 
things don't necessarily work out in precisely the way or the timeline that we want. It may look a little different, but one thing I feel very confident about is that if we are setting goals and working toward them in small but methodical ways, we are far more likely to attain them or at least come much closer than we would have otherwise to attaining them. So it becomes so powerful to do that. But you're right, Scott, I think, to, to home in on one of the points in the book, which is the courage that it takes to do it. Certainly, pretty much all the societal pressures are around short-term results. I mean, we see it you know, reading the news headlines about cor corporations run amok sometimes with, you know, e executives having malfeasance because of the push toward quarterly earnings, which is tragic to look at. We see it in our own lives when, you know, we're so plagued sometimes by social media and what we see on social media and, oh, you know, how, how did, you know, why do they have it figured out and I don't have it figured out? What am I doing wrong? You know, so many people kind of torment themselves with these messages. And of course, we know it's not healthy. And also, of course, it's hard to break out of it. And so part of my goal in writing The Long Game was really to try to help people with a concrete framework, you know, actual strategies that they could use and employ today to begin to, to lift our perspective a little bit on the horizon so we can start making better choices that, that we feel good about and that are more likely to result in the future that we actually want. Dory, I have written on numerous occasions that perhaps to your horror, I have patterned much of my career after yours. I've had a very successful three-decade corporate America career you know, as an executive officer in a public company. And, and like you, I am you know, in the midst of a, of a, of a pivot as well. And you, know, you wrote in the book about how, I think it was just, maybe it was right at the beginning of the pandemic, you had to make a big pivot. Now you had laid some groundwork. You certainly had you know, done the due diligence around online courses and coaching that didn't require you to be physically on a plane somewhere to be earning money. But you very quickly recognized that you had, to, you had to pivot your brand and your capability and your income streams because you saw perhaps devastation coming for the pandemic. You recognized that independent of a pandemic, you might always not be able to get on a plane. You might have an illness or something that prevents you from hopscotching around the world as you've done for a decade. I think one of the things I admire most about you that is completely replicable for everyone is you think long-term. You don't wait until you are acted upon. You disrupt yourself. Could you maybe recreate some sense out of that long intro there around what you saw coming and what, you, what, what bold, courageous choices did you make to ensure that the brand that is Dory Clark not just survives, but thrives in this last two years of disruption. Yeah, well, thank you, Scott. I appreciate it. One moment that I talk about in the long game is was Christmas time in 2015. And that was around the time that actually uh, an earlier book of mine, um, Stand Out, was released. And that year, I was working so hard to promote this, <laughs> this little book. And I had given 74 talks that year. I was, you know, more, more than once a week, like 1.5 times a week. I was on planes, traveling around, giving talks. And at the end of the year, I was, of course, sick. <laughs> I had some terrible cold and was just sort of sitting there miserable in my New York City apartment and wondering, wait, why am I spending so much money living in New York when I'm not even ever in my apartment and now I'm sick and run down? And I, I realized, you know, this is not sustainable. 
And I, I think probably a lot of people during COVID, when we were forced to stop traveling, probably had similar realizations about the fact that we had been doing things that um, were kind of punishing and, and maybe aren't so sustainable. And so I really began thinking, okay, you know, it is it is not impossible that there might be a recession where a lot of the way that I was earning money was giving conference keynotes. There's a recession. We all know first thing that gets cut is the conferences and the conference speakers. Another possibility, a distinct possibility was that I, I had a cold. Well, that might not be the worst of it. I mean, you know, God willing, I wouldn't get sick, but I know friends who have, and I realized that it would not be sustainable to earn an income from keynote speaking in that regard either. So around that time, I really got serious about starting, this is a concept that I talk about quite a bit in the long game. I started to, to really begin to reallocate some of my so-called 20% time. Um, this is something that Google talks about where you allocate a portion of your time to more experimental projects. And in my case, that was online courses because I certainly didn't see a pandemic coming, but I was at least aware that there were more pragmatic risks that I needed to guard against. And so I started investing in learning about online courses because there is a, a learning curve. And I started investing time in, in creating some so that I could build up uh, a reservoir for myself. And that was something that actually did later proved to be quite valuable during the pandemic, even though I hadn't literally predicted that that would happen. Dory, let's pivot to this idea of, uh, I think you call it the hidden benefits of frenzy. Now this stopped me in my tracks because those who know me know that I am a very intense, productive, efficient person. I don't, I don't actually apologize for that. I regret it when I move it into my relationships because I know you cannot be you know, frenzied with people. But you, uh, you talk about Tim Ferriss. Here's the passage, and I want you to riff on this. Um, the author Tim Ferriss, in an interview um, on his own podcast, The Tim Ferriss Show, talked about how up until at least 2004, his solution to feeling anything he didn't want to feel was to add more activities, he says, to drown it out. Some people use heroin, some people use cocaine, some people use work, and he used activities. This is in the chapter where you talk about white space and again, the hidden benefits of frenzy. People who are trying to think long-term in a short-term world, what would you advise us to do if we are perhaps subconsciously using activities or work as a, as a cover for thinking more long-term and making bold choices and saying no to some things and deliberately yes to others. Yeah. So you raise an important point, Scott. I mean, I think the first thing for the many people who are using work or activities as, as the, the kind of numbing factor, I mean, first of all, um, credit where credit is due, far better than crack. Uh, so if we're making a choice, it's a better choice, but nonetheless, not an optimal choice. So there's been very interesting research, um, notably by Sylvia Baletza and her colleagues at Columbia University, about the fact that in certainly in America and in many Western societies, extreme busyness is actually seen as a sign of high social status. And so at a really fundamental level, one of the big problems we have is we're idolizing the wrong things. You know, you, you hear people, and this is not uncommon, right? You know, hey, Scott, how are you doing? Oh, so busy, crazy busy, you know? And, and people do that and it's, uh, it's like, okay, great. But there's, there's almost sometimes a performative element to our busyness 
And it, it becomes a self-reinforcing pattern because yes, we are busy. Of course we are. That's not wrong. That's not untrue, but also it becomes a, a way of validating ourselves that if we were actually to take the steps necessary to clear our schedule, it can be in a very strange subconscious way, uh, a little discomforting because it means that maybe we're not quite as essential to the company as we or our clients as we thought we were. It, maybe it means we're just a little bit Im less important than we thought that we were. And so we oftentimes are subconsciously tying our own hands when it comes to taking those steps. The other thing, of course, is if we are filling our calendar with work or with various activities, it, it doesn't leave us room deliberately. It doesn't leave us room to be asking some of the harder big picture questions. If you're so focused on, I have to do this, I have to do this, I have to do this, it's actually a little bit of an easy way out sometimes. It's not easy in terms of performing it. It's actually very taxing and, and hard, but mentally it can be easier than asking a profoundly discomforting question like, am I doing the things I should be doing? Or are the things that I'm doing now actually leading in the direction that I want? Or am I in the right career? All of these things can be very destabilizing if we face them head on. And so there's a lot of reasons why we might actually be choosing essentially to kind of avoid them through busyness. Dory, I'm going to ask you again to use your own career in your writing the Forbes column and kind of the role that that played as a, a pivot point for you to build your own writing career and um, coaching career. Before I do that, so think about that for a moment. One of the biggest lessons I learned from Franklin Covey's recently former CEO but current executive chairman Bob Whitman is this concept that thinking is a legitimate business activity. This is a quote from Bob. And it has sort of haunted me because you know, in a world where we're all judged by how busy we are oftentimes and do we look productive in the, in the, the olden days, in the, in the workplace, right? It was rare that you would see someone kind of sitting back on their, their chair with their feet up on their desk thinking you thought they were, you know, being lazy. But in fact, thinking is a legitimate business activity. It goes to this idea of white space. I, I feel like you've applied that principle well in your life. Can you speak to that and can you integrate that into your, your column for Forbes magazine? You were very deliberate on how you used that and the decisions you made about um, your own pivot points. What, what are the lessons from that? And feel free to take some time because I found that part of the book captivating around how you did this to lead to that and how you said no to this because you felt it would lead to that. It wasn't flawless all the time. But what, what are the lessons out of you recreating that for us? Yeah, thank you, Scott. Well. What you're referring to is in 2012, I started contributing for uh, for Forbes, and I did that very assiduously for about uh, three and a half years until 2015. And at the time, I really did place a deliberate strategic bat. I was I was making good money. I was making a six figure uh, income as a consultant, but I realized that my income growth, my business growth, my brand growth was fundamentally going to be limited because the truth was, you know, everybody's situation is a little different when they start their own business or when they uh, are in their careers. But for me, a limiting factor was that I was not starting from a place where I had perhaps, you know, been in a, in a uh, big consulting firm or something like that. I didn't know fancy clients. I didn't know high powered executives. I'd been a reporter. 
I'd been a nonprofit executive. I'd been a campaign staffer. I knew some people, but it wasn't high-powered CEOs that could pay me a lot of money. And so I was working a million little projects for a little bit of money. And it was uh, it was enough to keep me really busy. And I was making enough money, but I, I realized there was no pathway that I could see that would enable me to level up my business, to truly have the level of success that I wanted. I knew that if that was going to happen, I would have to do something fairly radically different. And so in my case, what I decided to do, and it was a bet, it was placing a strategic bet, was I decided that I would cut out the bottom part of my clients and my revenue. And so for things that were smaller clients or one-off things or not a lot of money, I just started saying no to it. And it it actually, you know, the, this was not an academic exercise. Um, I reduced my income by more than $100,000 over the course of the next several years, per year, to be clear. It was a lot of money at stake that I was giving up. Um, but the reason that I gave it up was because I realized I needed time to do something different. And that was brand building and making connections and building my network. So using the Forbes column that I wrote as an entry point, I started interviewing a lot of people. It was primarily fellow authors and uh, business thinkers, but it was people that I wanted to build connections and relationships with, not for any particular reason. It was not like, oh, I want to get a thing, but I realized those are the kind of people I wanted yeah. to know and the kind of social circles I needed to be part of. And so I used almost every Forbes column that I wrote as a vehicle to interview people I wanted to meet. So over the course of these three and a half years, I wrote about 250 columns for them. It was, it was a lot of material. It was a minimum of five, but sometimes as many as 10 uh, columns per month. So it was a significant amount of time and energy. But it was, it was my placing a bet and saying, all right, this is the world I want to enter. And you know, this, these are the, the stakes associated with it. And what I love about content creation as a vehicle and why I would recommend it to almost anyone, in fact, you know, in, in my book, Standout, I talk about what later went on to, uh, to sort of coalesce into uh, what I call my recognized expert formula, which is understanding the pieces of what it's necessary to become a recognized expert. And they are content creation, so you're sharing your ideas, social proof, so you're garnering the credibility so that people will listen to you and then your network because you need to know the right people you need them to to know you in order to fully have your expertise recognized when you are writing for a high profile publication and you are doing interviews you are hitting all three simultaneously so it's actually a very valuable use of your time if you want to do brand building platform building or network building um, so i made that investment over the period of a few years and, you know, these things take time to, uh, to, to pay off, so to speak, at least in terms of a, you know, a monetary sense. But I think it was really critical in enabling me to level up my connections, the people I know, and just the, the world that I orbited in. And so certainly I've now more than made up for the revenue that I lost at the time. But uh, it, was, it was a little bit of a scary decision. But uh, I knew that the essence of strategy is being willing to place a definitive bet. Dory, we're going to talk about networking here in a moment and the three types of networking you talk about in the long game. Before we do that, you, you teach a concept called you know, making something count more than once. Like, if, can you get the maximum impact out of something? And you, you have a colleague 
whose name I will slaughter. So I will defer to you to talk about his story because there's so many insights to glean from the story around, you know, if you're coming to an event or you're at a cocktail party or reception or a conference, you know, some of our strategy is to meet as many people as possible, pick up as many business cards as possible, and then, you know, see what falls through the sieve, so to speak. But this gentleman had a bit of a different strategy. Recreate that story so that our listeners and viewers around the world can maybe be more thoughtful around how they network. And then we'll move into the three types. Yeah, absolutely, Scott. And so you're referring to a story that I tell in the long game uh, about a, a wonderful friend uh, and colleague named Nihar Chaya. And Nihar, a couple of years ago, he, he was the father of a young daughter, you know, very, very young and uh, needed a lot of care as young kids do. So it really had to be a high bar for him to take an international business trip. But there was a, a big conference, the, the Thinkers 50 conference, which is a biennial ranking of the world's top business thinkers. And he decided to go to London from Dallas for it. And so he knew he needed to make this count. And so in the long game, I actually recount some of the many ways that he was able to extract value from this experience, which I think is so important for us. You know, almost anybody would say, okay, well, I'll go to the conference and I'll meet some good people. And, you know, for some of us, that's enough. But if you really want to be strategic about how can you get the maximum value out of an experience, it's useful to think about some of the steps that Nihar took. So, of course, uh, he focused on meeting and having conversations with interesting people that he wanted to connect with. That was, that was great. Um, but it's a little bit table stakes. Uh, part of what he did was he also, uh, Nihar also wrote for Forbes, he decided to write an article for Forbes about his experience, summarizing his learning. So number one, he was able to get content out of the experience. Uh, number two, uh, I'm sure that probably means it was, you know, I, I haven't looked at Nihar's taxes, but I assume that means it was all you know tax deductible because he's uh, going to this business conference, writing about it. So that's you know a nice way to solidify that as well. In the article, he you know quoted and interviewed some of the people that he met. And in doing that, it gives him, number one, credit with them because they say, oh, wow, what a nice guy. What a thoughtful guy. He quoted me. And it gives him an excuse to be able to reach back out to them and say, oh, hey, I mentioned you in this article. That makes it more likely that they're going to remember who he is and have a positive association with him. It gave him an opportunity to follow up and connect with the organizers of the conference. Um, so he's building a long-term relationship with them. So there's a lot of gain uh, to come from all of this. You might say, oh, well, it's just a conference, but it's a way of extending it out so that he has multiple bites at the apple to continue connecting with people, following up with people, and then reminding them of who he is and that he's somebody who is adding value. Dora, take that a step further. In your book, you talk about these three types of networking. I think you call them short-term, long-term, if I'm not mistaken, infinite horizon networking. Deconstruct the three of those and remind us, for those of us that are good at it, for those of us who are bad at it, for those of us who are good at it but hate it, talk about the value, perhaps now more than ever, of these three types of marketing or networking, rather. Certainly. So in the long game, I talk about three different variations of networking. Now, short-term networking is really the kind that perhaps comes to many people's minds. This is what I would say gives networking a bad name. Uh, it's networking where you want something now. And everybody 
feels pretty uncomfortable with this. Uh, you know, most people feel very uncomfortable if they're the one being hit up for something. But but also it feels pretty bad or pretty weird to be the person, uh, you know, asking for something. So I, I really advise people if at all possible, just avoid this altogether. When you are in a moment of need, you know, oh, I need a job. Oh, I need an investment. This is frankly not the time to be connecting with strangers. Now, the caveat, it's great to connect with strangers through your friends and through your trusted contacts. Oh, hey, Scott, I really need a job doing X, Y, Z. Do you know anyone who's hiring? Yes. And you could say, oh, yeah, I'll <laughs> connect you. That's great. They are connecting with me because of your relationship with them. But if you pounce on someone who's a stranger and, you know, oh, oh, you work at that company? I'm trying to get in at that company. Can you help me? Like, you, they don't know you. It's, it's just absolutely the, the wrong time. And so I would say we need to de-emphasize short-term networking whenever possible. The two other kinds, what I would say are the beneficial kinds of networking, first of all, there's long-term networking. And so for most people who we would consider good networkers, this is really where mostly they excel. Long-term networking is you identify people um, likely in your field where you say, you know what, it's not like I need a specific thing from them. I, I don't know how I can be helpful to him or I don't know how he can be helpful to me, but he seems like a cool person. I'd like to get to know him. And so you're building a relationship because you're genuinely interested in that person. I'm guessing that describes why you reached out to me first, right? Was you felt long-term, I know, I'm kidding. Actually, it was, it was me that reached out to Dory for the record, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. We're long-term all the way, Scott. But the third kind, infinite, what I call infinite horizon networking, is something that I feel like is overlooked by many people. Even actually a lot of good networkers sometimes fail to appreciate the value of infinite horizon networking. And this is essentially, I'll call it like wild card networking. Uh, it's networking with people who you literally think, wow, would I, would I ever have anything in common with that person? Would I ever need anything from that person? Um, probably not. And so for somebody who is business focused, it might seem extraneous or unnecessary. You know, they're a dog trainer and you're an accountant or, you know, they're a lawyer and you're a comedian, you know, like eh, what, what could I ever do with this person? But what is actually really powerful about it, first of all, it's powerful. Uh, it's always good to have blue ocean for yourself. And most people in your field or in your position are probably ignoring those possible connections. So it, that there's a competitive advantage there. But number two, the fact that they are so disparate in their world, in their worldview, in their interests, in their connections, means that you are far more likely to be exposed to, to new people, new ideas, and new opportunities that can be really valuable and transformative. It is possible that your worlds might converge over time and suddenly be relevant in interesting ways. It's also possible that just sheer exposure to them and their world might trigger something with you that sends you off on a novel direction. And any of that is actually really quite powerful. So I encourage people not to overlook the infinite horizon connection possibilities as well. You know, Dory, I'm going to guess a lot of our viewers can relate to this next uh, conundrum that I'll share, which was, you know, after 30 years working in corporate America, five almost for the Disney company, then 25 for the Franklin Covey company, I, I found myself with a huge network, but it was all 
within inside the organization. Not so dissimilar to our friend Ron Carucci, who you write about how he'd written a ton, but it was basically to a small world of people right, within his organization or within his tight network. And I realized five years ago, I don't know enough people outside of my two major employers. I have a, ma- a vast network, but it's all very much inside, and I had to pivot and, and almost kind of rebrand my networking strategy to flip it outside the organization. What advice would you give to people who perhaps don't yet know that they're going to be disrupted? They're going to lose their job. Their industry is going to change. They're going to need to build a network. They're going to need to tap into a network. What should they be doing now to perhaps move outside their comfort zone to assess their network and know the right ways to build it? Kind of the idea of dig your well before you're thirsty. Yeah, absolutely, Scott. And you're right. This is such a common problem. In fact, in my very first book, Reinventing You, I talk about a professional who had this situation. Uh, Dan had worked for many years at a large kind of established tech company. And he woke up one morning and he just suddenly, you know, he really hadn't thought about it before, but he just realized, wow, literally everyone I know now works at this company. And, you know, like a lot of things, right? When you are when you are over-indexed on something, when it's going great, it's great. Yeah. And when it goes badly, it can go really badly. Yes. You know, if, if all your money is in one stock in the stock market and it's flying high, you feel like a genius. But if suddenly it plummets, you realize it's a very perilous situation. And Dan realized, oh my gosh, you know, if anything happened, if like there was a layoff or something, like there's no one to help me because everyone else he knew would be in the same boat. So it's it's uh, also, of course, he's not being exposed to a lot of new perspectives or ideas because everyone's drinking the same water. And so he decided, I think in a very admirable way, to make just small but but proactive changes. And in his case, he was an engineering manager and so all of his employees, you know, they're coders, right? So they'd come in at like 11 o'clock in the morning. That was the schedule they were on. So he realized like, okay, I could do something in the morning before anyone comes in. And so once a week, he decided to ha- start having breakfast meetings with people in in the community, you know, so he would reach out and, you know, he decided that he would just try to get to know people in the ecosystem. So he would ask for introductions. Hey, is there anyone interesting that uh, that I should talk to? Is there anybody that uh, that you would recommend I get to know? And so he started having breakfast with venture capitalists, with other entrepreneurs in the ecosystem, you know, just different people associated with his uh, alma mater. And he'd have breakfast with people once a week. And he realized it was actually very transformative because all of a sudden, he's meeting with the heads of these like little baby startups. Now, all of a sudden he has a much better sense of companies that his big company could potentially acquire. Oh, so, you know, he had the inside scoop, same thing with meeting with the venture capitalists. He had a much better sense of industry trends and what was going on, what the local gossip was, and it made him more valuable at his job. But what it also did was it made him more secure because Certainly, you know, if you want to go out on your own at some point that, yeah, that's something that's good to do. But even if you don't, even if you never do, just the fact that you have other people that you can call on if circumstances ever change becomes a really powerful asset to have in your back pocket. If you've flown on Delta Airlines in the last three or four years, you know Dory Clark because she's very prominently one of the course teachers for LinkedIn Learning. And she's on every Delta Airline flight I've been on for a couple of years Dory, that wasn't always the case, right? You didn't all of a sudden wake up one day and find yourself uh, on every Delta back head head screen seat because you worked your way there. 
hard for decades. And we know this adage to be true. There's no such thing as overnight success. There is overnight fame, but there's no such thing as overnight success. In the book, let's, let's finish our discussion. We talk about sort of the speed, the speed of success. What parting words would you give to our listeners and viewers on how not to short circuit, to sort of you know, resist the temptation to try to Moore's Law your way into influence or success? What have you learned to be a governing principle about the speed of success? Yeah, I, I think this is something really crucial to emphasize, so I'm glad that you're bringing it up, Scott. The, the whole last section of the long game is what I call keeping the faith, because I think it's, it's so important to recognize that if a goal is meaningful enough, if a goal is big enough, odds are, number one, it's probably going to take a while to obtain, uh, something you have to work for. And number two, also, odds are, it's not going to be a straight path. I mean, I think we know this intellectually, and yet emotionally, it yeah. can be extraordinarily hard yeah. if we're trying to do something we've, we've kind of mapped out in our head how it's supposed to look. And then all of a sudden, whoa, like, wait a minute, that looks really different. Or why is this taking so long? Or, you know, oh my gosh, this particular person said no, or this particular person said it wasn't good enough. And for a lot of people, we, we get thrown off course. And for me, one of the central motivating factors in wanting to write the long game was to try to help good, smart people who are trying to get good things done in the world be able to make them happen and be able to, to persist and persevere through that process because it can get really, really discouraging. In between deciding to, doing, deciding to do something and actually accomplishing it, again, if it's a big enough goal, there's usually a gap in time. And in that moment, I think of it like a dark tunnel because there's very little feedback there's very little encouragement oftentimes. And we don't know in that moment when we're stuck in the middle of the tunnel, are we at the beginning of the tunnel? Are we dead in the middle? Are we nearly at the end? We don't know. So the difference between it's not working and it's not working yet, we have no idea. And it can feel extraordinarily painful to not know. I wanted to try to provide with the long game tools for people to be able to, to persist and persevere through some of that because I don't want the, the to live in a world where the loudest voices are the ones that win. I want to live in a world where the best ideas win, but that's only possible if good people trying to do good things are able to, to persist and, and persevere through it. So I think that that is one of the most important parts when it comes to playing the long game. Beautifully said. The book is The Long Game, number one new release on Amazon for several weeks in the top 1,000 of all books in print in the world right now. Remarkable, the success of your book. Congrats to you, Dory. Other than launching this book and tending to all the other commitments you've made, tell us what's next for you. Oh, my goodness. Well, one of the concepts I talk about in The Long Game, Scott, is the idea of thinking in waves and understanding that there is a time and a season for yep. just about everything yep. in our professional life. So I can tell you what I am really excited about. I have been uh, working myself to the bone with this launch, and I have hereby declared that January and February of 2022 are going to be uh, not hundred percent, but I will call them quasi sabbatical months for me. I'm probably going to be cutting down my workload by about 90% during those months uh, because 
if, if we have to understand life is both a marathon and a sprint, there are times you have to sprint. And when you are releasing yeah. a book, that's one yeah. of them. Yeah. Uh, but you can't always keep that up. And you need, you know, for, if you're creating a reaction, you need to also create an equal and opposite reaction. So I'm really looking forward uh, early in the year to taking a little time to, uh, to reset and uh, re-strategize and play my own long game. So is that like Ibiza or Mykonos or St. Bart's? What does that look like? <laughs> ha, good. I, li- I like how you think, brother. Um, I actually have just had an offer accepted on a uh, condo in Miami. Wow. So it may, it may be tropical Miami. <laughs> good for you. Dory Clark, thank you for joining us. We're honored to shine Franklin Covey's spotlight on you. The book is The Long Game, How to Become a, short, or how to come, how to become a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. Thanks for your time. We'll have you back again on leadership when your next seminal book releases. Thank you, Dory. Thanks for your friendship. Thank you, Scott. Thanks, everybody. If you're not subscribing to On Leadership, do so by visiting franklincovey.com. We are now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast globally. Comes out every Tuesday in an email format. You can receive both the audio and video files as well as a weekly blog from me and a downloadable tool from the Franklin Covey Leadership Tool Chest. You also, of course, can subscribe on any and all of your favorite podcast platforms. And we'll see you back here next week for a new discussion on leadership. (laughs) 